This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Is there a science to missionary work? A Colorado Springs group has been helping Christian missionaries figure out where their work would make the most difference using data. After more than three decades, Global Mapping International will close its doors tomorrow. John Hurst is the CEO and president. And John, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you today. Give me an example of how your data has helped missionaries have more of an impact around the world. Yeah, one uh, very easy example is in the early days, back in the 80s when we were founded, one of the big questions that people were asking was, where are the groups of people, we call them people groups, that really have had very little access to the Christian message? And GMI was one of the very first groups to get on board with digitally mapping where the groups were, there's over 17,000 people groups in the world, and over 7,000 of them have less than 5% Christian, uh, essentially 40% of the world's population. And so GMI has been able to map that over the years and present that, and that's allowed missionaries to know where their help might be um, most needed as they do their work. And uh, GMI, Global Mapping International, tell me a little bit more about people groups. Sure. People groups are essentially an ethno-linguistic group that has enough in common to receive a message about a faith like Christianity and understand it as a community. And so um, we've defined over 17,000 of these groups around the world, speaking over 7,100 languages that are recorded in the world. So it's a pretty amazing diversity, uh, much beyond the nation states that most of us would be familiar with uh, when we look at the average map. How did the founders of the um, group discover there was a need for this kind of detailed data all the way back in the 80s? Well, it really came from the vision of some of um, the main leaders of Protestant Christian missions movements that said, you know, we've, um, you know, we've been going to all the port cities and we've been going to places, you know, populated places, but there's all these other places in the world that we don't really know much about. And how would we begin to understand and know more about those places? And they began to realize that data and information was really an important tool for them to have that understanding, whether it be understanding of languages, whether it be understanding of cultures or of dynamics, like our research um, on how the church and the response to AIDS um, go together and all kinds of different dynamics of kinds of information that would help someone to be a better ambassador to a certain people that they were working among. And this was before Google. Um, You have mapping projects to help religious groups understand things like what languages and dialects are spoken throughout the world. What does that look like? Well, we've um, worked with a, um, essentially the um, registry, the UN registry of all of the languages of the world. And GMI actually was the first organization to map every single one of those languages where they're actually spoken in the world. So imagine if you're going into a certain country and you're going to be in a certain part of that country, knowing what languages are spoken in that part of the country would be really, really helpful, whether you're doing relief work, whether you're working at a hospital, an orphanage, maybe you're helping to start a church, whatever the case might be. And so GMI provided that key insight to missionaries around the world to help them know, when I go, what kind of training materials do I need to take with me? What languages do I need to learn? What translators do I need to have with me? And on and on. What about literacy in different areas? Does knowing that kind of information help as well? 
Absolutely. You know, when when someone um, decides to um, become part of the Christian faith, one of the things we believe is that it's critical that they are able to read the Bible and to understand um, the messages uh, that were presented in the Bible. And so one of the key areas that GMI has done a lot of mapping of is the Bible translation process and then the mm. um, the access to resources in the languages that are spoken. And so, of course, then the literacy in those languages uh, is critical. You know, how many people are able to read a certain language? How many people need to get the messages through oral methods like storytelling versus uh, reading? You rely on groups and researchers out in the field to gather a lot of this information. And I'm trying to picture these workers embedding themselves into communities. How does that work? Yeah, so um, imagine imagine a community um, where where a church is being started or there's a clinic or there's an orphanage. And imagine then a, a Western missionary, a missionary from North America who decides to invest their life and go live there. Uh, they're really living there like um, any other person in town. Of course, they, they look and sound different and they have to learn the language. And, but then at the same time, you've got those workers. Let's say you've got a worker who's working at an orphanage or a clinic or, or in a church. But then you'll have other workers that are what we call information workers. And they're there for a different reason. They're there to do the survey work and understand what are the needs and, and you know, where should the next orphanage be put and, and what are the needs of the community for healthcare needs and things like that. And so there are missionaries full-time that are doing this information work, and it's considered one of the very important things that missionaries can do to better serve the other people who are doing the other kinds of work. And how often do non-Christian faith-based groups use this kind of data or use your data? You know, um, we were set up specifically to support missionaries and faith-based groups. But for instance, I'll give you an example. Our language uh, data, it's called the World Language Mapping System. Uh, It's been around for quite a few years now. And we have companies and governments and educational institutions all over the world who actually utilize that data to do better at their jobs. Mm. And so um, there's many examples of of the work that we do on behalf of the faith-based community, also benefiting many, many more people who might also need that information. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with John Hurst. He heads Global Mapping International in Colorado Springs. For 30 years, it's provided data and research for the mission community. And how do you know that having all of this data has really helped groups to be more effective, have more impact? You know, we we get stories all the time of people that come to us, come by our office, email us, call us and say, I was doing this thing over here, and then I um, purchased one of your books or got one of your maps or heard one of your sessions, you know, heard you present the data, and I realized that I was missing a whole huge picture of what was going on in the area I was serving in, and I changed my plan. Mm -hmm. I stopped doing this, and I started doing this. And so we have just seen that over and over again, how having more information in this kind of work can lead to much greater effectiveness and much more impact on the communities that uh, our missionaries are trying to serve. I found this interesting. I understand years ago someone came to you who wanted to understand the impact of something called 
Mission Aviation. And this is when groups operate airplanes to help missionaries get to different parts of the world. And because of that, GMI did a study on mission aviation. And what did you learn from that? It was a fascinating study. Um, It was funded um, by a donor who really wanted to understand the impact of um, aviation specifically designed to help tribal groups and to help missionaries trying to live and work among tribal groups. You know, so a few things we found. uh, One-fifth of all the missionaries that we talked to uh, said slowness of travel was a huge, huge problem. Mm. And one-third said that um, transporting cargo, you know, equipment, supplies, et cetera, was a huge problem. I'll just give you an example. I just pulled off yesterday one of the largest um, mission aviation groups called Mission Aviation Fellowship. They flew 7.7 million pounds of cargo last year. Hmm. That's a ton of work that they're doing. And what our study found was that um, just like in GMI's world, um, where there are many more options than there used to be when mission aviation was founded and started you know, uh, in the last century, they were the only show in town, right? Just like we were the only research option in town for missionaries. Today, there's lots of transportation options. So one of our main recommendations to mission aviation groups was They had to really, really understand what their missionaries or what the tribal groups they were supporting really needed because there's lots of ways to get around the world now. And it's not the same as in the 1930s or 40s when they might have been the only ones that could get to that village or the only way to get to that village. And while faith motivates some people to do good in the world, critics say that mission work can sometimes miss the mark and focus too much on spreading the gospel versus just helping people in need. What do you say to that? You know, I, I think that when we when we look at our faith, or when at least from the from GMI standpoint, when we look at our faith, we say our job is to love people and to serve them, and part of serving them is is giving them uh, this message of truth. But there's, that is completely integrated with our service to them in areas of humanitarian need and education and literacy and all those things. So I think what we're finding, especially as ministries use and as missionaries use more data and have more understanding of their world, their service is becoming more full. It's more integrated, where they're serving in ways that aren't just one focus, but multifaceted. And so I think that while, especially in the early days, that might have been more true, when you look at missions work today, it is very integrated and very holistic in how it tries to serve the communities where they live. And and your business was really at the cutting edge of bringing data into missionary work 30 years ago. Now you're shutting down, I understand, because of competition and lack of funding. There are other companies still doing this. What's the next frontier when it comes to advancing missionary work? That's a that's a great question. Um, there's so many frontiers. I think um, um, one of the next frontiers is um, the understanding of how people are moving um, from uh, essentially the rural areas to the urban areas. Um, you know, by 2050, over 90 percent of the world will live in an urban setting. And one of the real next frontiers is is what does it look like for the Christian church around the world, what we call the global church? Um, what does it look like for it to be also an urban church? You know, what, what does that mean? And Because for so many years, as you know, from 
from seeing stories and hearing things, a lot of missionary work has been in rural settings, right? In in far out and unreached places where there might really have been very little access to services and other things. But really that world is changing dramatically. And I think that's one of the the key next frontiers for us to understand and uh, to confront. John, thanks so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. John Hurst is the CEO and president of Global Mapping International, a Colorado Springs group that provides data for missionaries. It closes its doors tomorrow. Last month, GMI accepted applications from organizations interested in assuming GMI's data and research, and it recently announced the groups that won that intellectual property. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. More cities are transitioning to clean energy. These local efforts have come into focus since President Donald Trump announced the U.S. will pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. But how renewable can a city go? CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood is looking for answers in places like Pueblo and Boulder. And she brings us the story of one city's electric utility that transitioned to 100 percent renewables. Small town pride is a big deal. In a lot of places, people pump up the high school football team record. But in Aspen, it's all about billion-dollar ski resorts. Our ski town has the mountain right in the town. You don't take a bus to get there. Mayor Steve Scadron walks past downtown designer stores like Prada and Gucci. He's a wire-thin skier and runner with a mop of hair that moves almost as energetically as he does. Where should we go? Let's uh, stroll. Let me take it on the mall. He says behind the glitz is a city with an environmental mission. The ski industry alone stands to lose a lot if climate change takes hold. So in 2006, the city set a plan to reduce its carbon footprint 30 percent by 2020. Renewable energy plays a key role. In 2015, we reached 100 percent renewable, powering our electric utility. It took 10 years, but getting the last 25 percent was a huge challenge for us. That last 25% sent Aspen down a road that cost millions and rankled some environmentalists. A key chapter in the city's renewable history hinged on hydropower. Dave Hornbacher directs utilities and environmental initiatives for Aspen. He stands by what looks like a log cabin near Maroon Creek. This is an excellent example of locally generated hydroelectric Water surges through this 1980s hydropower plant. The city wanted to revive an old plant on a different stream. The move would have charted significant progress towards 100% renewable energy. Voters approved millions of dollars in bonds. Size-wise, it's a little. It would have been about twice the size of the Maroon Creek uh, hydroelectric plant that we're standing before right now. But that project sparked an environmental debate over stream diversions and water flows. In 2012, Aspen voters reversed course and rejected the idea. The only problem was that Aspen had already purchased a custom turbine for more than a million dollars. Five years after that vote, the city is still looking for a project or buyer. Aspen ultimately reached its 100 percent renewable goal through local hydroelectric facilities like this one, wind, and a small amount of biogas. 
That last bit comes from purchase power agreements, where electricity is bought at a set price from other regions or states. All of this goes through the city-owned utility to power the downtown core. Outside of that, people get their power through a different utility. Cities represent typically a large percentage of a utility's energy demand. Jody Van Horn directs a campaign for the Sierra Club. It wants to get 100 cities to commit to 100 percent renewable energy by the end of 2018. Aspen isn't part of this, but Van Horn says the environmental objectives that drove Aspen have motivated other places like Boulder to adopt goals. Cities are on the front lines of climate change, but they're also driving the solutions not only to address climate impacts, but also to deliver economic health and jobs benefits to residents. At the U.S. Conference of Mayors this week, the group passed a non-binding resolution to support cities' paths towards 100 percent renewable energy. But some energy experts think all this independent action may have a downside. So cities doing it on their own, states doing it on their own will uh, make it harder to solve our climate goals. Christopher Clack heads up the Colorado-based modeling firm Vibrant Clean Energy. He says cities and states need to look broader and build regional grids to deliver cheap renewable power. Clack says the U.S. energy mix may need to be broader than just 100 percent renewable energy. He led a study with 20 other authors that challenged an influential 2015 roadmap to 100 percent renewable energy. What we're trying to say is that the 100 percent renewable wind, water and sun only scenario is actually one that makes it a lot harder and possibly a lot more expensive. Clack says big problems stem from how people get power when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. He says the cheapest way to deliver reliable energy may come from small amounts of nuclear and natural gas if emissions can be stored deep underground. These problems don't weigh on Aspen Mayor Steve Scadron. He's charting a new course for his town. I had a gondola conversation over the winter with a gentleman who said, you got to 100 percent, now you need to do 150 (sighs) percent. Aspen streets are getting more crowded as thousands commute to the city for work. Emissions are adding up. Scadron wants the city to better accommodate electric vehicles while reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We have some really ambitious goals around mobility that speak to um, environmental priorities also, and I think that's, that's going to be next for us. Scadron's leading the effort and hopes new technologies will reshape transportation here. There's also more work to do. Aspen wants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 30 percent by 2020, but it's not on track. Transportation, airport emissions, and the natural gas used to heat homes are three reasons why. A plan this fall will evaluate next steps. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. You're going to hear a lot about renewable energy over the coming months from cities and from Colorado's gubernatorial candidates. Grace Hood talked more about that with CPR's Mike Lamp. Grace, you mentioned in your story just now that Boulder and Pueblo have declared 100 percent renewable goals. How are they going to get there? They've got tougher roads. Boulder is trying to municipalize its utility, and this is where they buy the assets and take over operations from Excel Energy. And this has been going on for a decade. It's not easy at all. Pueblo is also looking at going down a similar path. And Boulder and Pueblo are different from Aspen because 
That city, Aspen, has its own utility? That's correct. When I spoke to Jody Van Horn, she described a a spectrum of difficulty for cities that want to do this. And it's really easiest if a city is already calling the shots in terms of how energy gets delivered to customers. Are there other communities in Colorado that are considering more renewable energy? I spoke with the head of Colorado Sierra Club, and they're working on a campaign to get commitments in cities like Steamboat Springs, Lakewood, and Denver. They're working in about 20 cities overall, right now. Well, Grace, I guess we'll hear a lot more about this. That's right. Thanks. Thank you. That's CPR's energy reporter, Grace Hood, speaking with Mike Lamp. Grace is continuing to report on renewable energy in Colorado. Do you know someone who's got a big idea? How about a problem you want us to explore? Email us at energy at CPR.org. Now a correction to our story about how climate change and human behavior contribute to severe weather in Colorado. We talked about the hailstorm that hit the metro area in May and called it the most expensive natural disaster in state history. Listener Kevin Klein in Lakewood pointed out that's not exactly right. And Klein should know he leads the state's emergency management department. The spring hailstorm caused an estimated $1.4 billion of damage, far short of the $4 billion cost of the floods a few years ago. The hailstorm was estimated to be the most expensive insured disaster. Carol Walker at the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association explained the difference. When you talk about an insured catastrophe, it's a disaster that's covered by insurance. So that would be anything from a wildfire or a hailstorm or wind damage. When it comes to flooding, which is our state's worst natural disaster, which we had in 2013, that unfortunately and heartbreakingly so was not covered by insurance because people needed separate flood insurance for that. So uh, that's where you really see that discrepancy between an insured catastrophe and just a natural disaster of the magnitude of which we saw with that unprecedented 2013 flooding. We share your feedback regularly in Loud and Clear. Reach us at Twitter at Colorado Matters. On Facebook, we're CPR News. Mountains cast spells on me. Those words begin a poem by the late Belle Turnbull. Her work focused on Colorado, especially the mountains and mining. And despite being well-known during her time, her work went out of print. Now it's collected in a new book co-edited by David Rothman. He directs the graduate program in creative writing at Western State Colorado University. And David, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Let's start with the Turnbull poem we just mentioned. Please read Mountain Mad. Mountain Mad. Mountains cast spells on me. Why, because of the way earth heaps lie, should I be choked by joy mysteriously, stilled or drunken gay? Why should a brown hill trail tug at my feet to go? Why should a boggy swale tune my heart to a nameless tale mountain marshes know? Timberline and the trees wind whipped and the sand between. Why am I mad for these? What dim thirst do they appease? What filmed scents brush clean? And what is Turnbull up to in this poem? Well, um, the interesting thing this is one of her unpublished poems, actually. Mm. Uh, it was unpublished. Uh, not sure if it ever appeared anywhere. Uh, it's in a manuscript in the Denver Public Library. So uh, 
I think the interesting thing about this is that she doesn't answer the questions. Hmm. And that's the difference between her and poets who came before her who would always provide some kind of a sentimental, more or less sentimental answer. Here, what Turnbull is doing is she's simply asking this question, the kind of question about what it is that's so beautiful that draws her to these mountains, that drew her to them throughout her life. And and part of what makes her special is that attitude where she's perfectly comfortable simply letting the question lie. What film sense brushed clean? What what filmed sense of my own do these mountains brush clean? And she simply lets it go, uh, mm. which is really quite extraordinary. It takes It's a kind of poetic leap of faith. And she's leaving it open for the reader and for herself mm-hmm. to think about the answer. Yeah. And simply by asking the question, she evokes the feeling perhaps far more powerfully than she might if she sought to answer it, because for her, it's a very big question. At one point, Turnbull's publisher asked her to write about her life to accompany one of her books. And it gives a look into what her life was like and who she was as a person. Um, Will you read the paragraph that starts at the top of page 129? She's describing herself in this passage. Yeah, it's very funny. Uh, and it's, it's not in complete sentences even, really. There, She sort of leaves the subject out. So I'm reading it exactly as it is on the page. Uh, and again, this also is unpublished. Has found a Vassar education not practical for mountain living. Vassar didn't teach her to deal with frozen pipes or how to break trail through a 14-inch fall of snow with snowshoes or how to get rid of pack rats or how to hang a haunch of venison or how to cut up a jag of firewood for her Franklin stove. Vassar education has its uses, however. She can write an impassioned love letter, for example. She frequently trades this talent to a mountain man's suitor in consideration of a thoroughly dead pack rat that has been making free with her premises. After 15 years in the mountains, she has overcome other handicaps of her education, can handle a saw and an axe (laughs) with considerable skill. Terrific. And we'll talk about what a mountain man and suitor is in a few minutes. But how did she end up living in a mining town and writing poetry? It's a great story. It's a wonderful story. Um, She was born in Hamilton, New York, and her family moved west when she was a young girl, I think for her father's health. He became the principal of the Colorado Springs High School. She went east to Vassar, graduated in about 1902, I think, and um, lived on the East Coast for a few years, teaching school in New York State, came back and eventually became the principal, uh, not the principal, the uh, chair of the English department at the Colorado Springs High School, retired in uh, 1935 and moved with what in those days would have been called her companion, the novelist Helen Rich, uh, up to Frisco for two years and then to Breckenridge to Nine French Street, which I think should be a national monument, Hmm. uh, a cabin there which is still standing. Uh, and lived there for the rest of her life with Helen. They both lived there till they died in about 1970. And um, we, she, there's very little record of her life before going to Breckenridge, really, uh, in her archive. She didn't preserve a lot of it. And But in that time, she started publishing a lot of poems in national and regional journals and won some national prizes and then published these books all after she moved up to Breckenridge. And she and Helen clearly just loved the mountains, loved the people, and, uh, and 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 spent their lives there, I think, quite happily, as far as I can tell. Vassar clearly didn't prepare her, but <laughs> what did she mean in, in that by trading her talent to a mountain man suitor for a dead pack rat? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's important to note, if you could see the text, that mountain man is capital M, 
Mountain, mm-hmm. capital M, man. And uh, I think she was playing Cyrano de Bergerac. You know, I think she's saying that they would come to her and say, well, Belle, I know you can write. Now, you know, I, I, would you write me a letter here to Ellie May? And she'd say, sure, I'll, I'll do that if you kill the pack rat that's back in the uh, right. in the shed eating all the provisions. Uh-huh. And so she literally traded traded services in that way. And you mentioned at the time she lived with her partner, Helen Rich, um, as an out lesbian couple in Breckenridge before it became a ski area. Um, Rich was also a writer. And I can't imagine that being out as a couple was common at the time. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know how they behaved in that regard. Uh, I don't, who knows how, uh, what they said or how it was discussed. There isn't a lot of reference to that in her writing so far as I know although I haven't been through every single uh, piece of unpublished work. But um, they they were a couple who lived together, and they were clearly accepted and uh, I think even beloved by their neighbors uh, mm. there. Uh, and they wrote about the community in which they lived, and they did a lot of research on it, both of them. Uh, and Helen was probably better known during their lives. She wrote two novels, one called The Spring Begins, one called The Willow Bender, I believe published with Houghton Mifflin. But... Uh, there doesn't there doesn't seem to have been a lot of controversy. They were I think they were well integrated into their town. Hmm. And Turnbull's first book, Gold Boat, was a novella written in verse about dredging for gold. It was published in 1940 when she was 60 years old, and she based it on research and notes she took from an actual dredging operation, which didn't go very well. Talk about a few of the details she writes in her fictionalized account of that. It's. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Dave Mason and I go back and forth on this. He has an essay in the book, and he's more critical of it than I am. I think it's uh, practically worthy of being a film. Um, mm-hmm. And it's quite clear that, that she and Helen, who also writes about dredging in her novels, went down to the courthouse and read all the records. They read everything. They, knew, they understood the f- financial structure and chicanery. They understood the geology. They understood the technology. They understood the people. Um, there are all sorts of one, and it's all integrated into this uh, into this story, this eighty-page verse novella that's very, very compact, including the financial chicanery, which I think is particularly well conveyed. And um, there's violence in it. She actually fictionalizes a, an account in which a guy was pulled overboard by a, a loose cable and literally ripped to pieces in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't sh- shy away from that at all. Uh, it's very vivid. Um, writing that has a kind of texture to it that I don't think anybody had captured before her in mm-hmm. writing about the, the the world of mining and the lives of miners. She created such interesting characters. How many were based on real people that she lived with and around? Oh Well, she claims basically most of them. Uh, there's a funny note that my co-editor, uh, the very gifted Jeffrey uh, Valines, um, points out where she says, you know, it may seem like some of these characters speak in an odd way, but I assure you that's the way they speak. She was very punctilious about it. And in her notebook, she would write down, she clearly would uh, do like James Joyce, you know, and when after a social encounter, when somebody had left, she, she would write down what they had said as quickly as she could and try to transcribe it and get the feel of it. And I think her dialogue, her dialogue um, is generally uh, pretty good, especially considering that it's then fashioned into into verse. So she did uh, write a long historical article about a guy named Rivette who was the dredger, the actual guy who lived up in Blue River, mm-hmm. uh, who made a fortune and I guess lost it then uh, on dredging. Uh, she she was uh, 
a careful enough historian to actually publish in historical journals about the material as well. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're speaking with Western State Professor Dave Rothman about the late Colorado poet Belle Turnbull. Much of her writing focused on the mountains and mining. Rothman co-edited a new collection of her work. And um, let's hear um, one of the uh, poems from in her next book, The Ten Mile Range. A character named Mr. Probus <laughs> plays an important role. And tell us about him. He's a fictional um, alter ego persona, a tough old, worn out, hard rock miner. And um, the series of poems that she wrote called At That Point, Mr. Probus, which even as a title is very modern and very different from what came before in the mining camps, is um, won a prize from Poetry Magazine in 1938, I think. And... Uh, in that year, um, other prize winners included Hilda Doolittle and uh, uh, Dylan Thomas. So she was moving in very fast company. And it's a sequence of 10 sonnets. Uh, should I just go ahead? Yeah, let's yeah. hear one of Mr. Probus's poems, um, Time as Wellspring, on uh, page 75. Time is a Wellspring. And this is the first one in the sequence. Um, I just love this poem. It's, it's, when I first read it, it stunned me. I thought, said Mr. Probus, there was time. Time by the dipperful, time lipping, flowing out of some plenteous spring where I'd be going with my bright dipper, frosting it with rhyme, hoarding no more than God would hoard a dime, slipping time over my palate, careless blowing drops off my mustache, wasting it full knowing there would be more, more always, soft and prime. I've lived some years at Stringtown, Probus said, back in the mountain, mining molybdenum, gassed and sent in again and lined with lead. Seven years, some few will last who stand the gaff. Sometime where the machines bore, springs will come. I have to laugh, he said. I have to laugh. Mm. Talk about this poem. Um, it's tough to hear, you know, some of the misery of life as oh, mining. Yeah. Basically, you know, mining. that's what it's about. I mean, it's a meditation on... You know, growing old and the passage of time and unfulfilled dreams, and it's about mortality. And he's obviously banged up, and um, he he says at the end, "I have to laugh because even though I thought that there would always be more time, like there's always more water, like coming from a spring, and now I know there won't be." And the thing is that so much of it is so accurate. I mean, I think she might be the first person to rhyme on molybdenum, <laughs> and. Uh, and it's, I mean, Stringtown, of course, as many people, listeners probably know, is an actual district, was a district of Leadville, where, of course, they mine molybdenum. And, uh, he's, you know, he says, I've lived some years at Stringtown, back in the mountain, mining molybdenum. And um, other things that are in here that people might not know so well are that they talk about um, standing the gaff. And that's a famous phrase among miners at that time, referring to a strike in Nova Scotia, um, against a British mining company where a notorious mine boss said, oh, they'll be back because they can't stand the gaff, meaning the hook, you know, the mm. hook of hunger and the hook of deprivation. We'll get them to come back. We'll break them. And there were all these famous songs written using that phrase about, you know, fighting the fighting the boss. And, and so it, 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 as a meditation on death and the very hard life of a hard rock miner, this is a tone and a note of reality, of gritty reality that... Uh, that I don't think had ever really appeared in the poetry that came out of the mining camps before then. Just to wrap up, she was fairly well-known, um, 
But why was she forgotten? Well, you know, the, this question of who gets read and who doesn't and who stays in print and who doesn't, thats a it's very hard to figure it out. Uh, it really requires criticism in the sense that you have to have an advocate, as the people in this book have been an advocate for her and as I want to be. And, you know, she was a, a, a brainy, retired lesbian school teacher with no children living or heirs or family living up in Breckenridge. And when she passed away, uh, her her material eventually wound up buried in the Denver Public Library and it went out of print and, and nobody took took it up. Um, and it was Janet Robertson up at the Center of the American West who introduced me to her. And I thought, wow, this stuff just has to go back into print. That's how this kind of thing generally happens. That's what happened with Emily Dickinson. And Bell deserves to be read in that way as well. Dave, thanks for bringing it back to readers, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Western State Colorado University professor and CPR poet-in-residence David Rothman. He co-edited a new book featuring the work of the late Colorado poet Bell Turnbull. We've posted photos of her as well as some of her poems at cprnews.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The band Head for the Hills has released four albums of what they call postmodern bluegrass. The Fort Collins Quartet formed in 2003, and it has a new album, Potions and Poisons. Here's the opening song. It's called Afraid of the Dark. Last to stand is the first to draw. Bowing hat in hand the curtain call Both understand it ain't personal The last to draw is the first to fall Head for the Hills performs at the Jazz Aspen Snowmass Concert Series on July 6th. Matt Lowen plays bass for the group and Joe Lassard plays fiddle. Matt and Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Hello. You've called Potions and Poisons the most definitive album for the band. Joe, what do you think the music on this record represents? Um, Why do you think it represents your sound so well? Why is it the definitive album? Well, of course, because it is the most recent and current (laughs) for us. And in that sense, obviously, it is representative of what we're doing now. But it also is kind of a, a bit of a... We've been, you know, in our course of over 10 years as a band, we've gone in some different directions, and this is kind of the newest direction and representative with our new newest mandolin player um, who's only been in the band for a couple years now, and uh, he kind of added a specific flavor to the group and uh, just following that that muse right now. And, Matt, Potions and Poisons is the first uh, Head to the Hills album without founding member Mike Chappelle, who left after 12 years with the group. And uh, as you said, you have a mandolin player, Sam Parks. Can you give a sense of how the band's sound has changed? Sure. You know, I, I guess I would um, I'll start with saying that Sam's background is is as a as a bluegrass mandolin player. He got... The instrument put in his hand as a young kid. Um, his parents have been 
bluegrass festival acolytes or whatever for a long time. That's kind of part of, you know, what they do, and they expose him to that world. So he's got a really strong bluegrass background, um, which is something kind of neat that he brings to the group, and we really appreciate that. As far as you know, the the new sound of Head for the Hills, I think it's to kind of point on the last question. It's a refinement and a, a kind of a tightening, and we we jam a little bit less. We're maybe a tiny bit more song oriented. We've always been a song oriented band, but I think that comes through even more now. And Sam contributed to the songwriting with "Give Me a Reason." Let's hear some of that now. Did you hear it through the willow? Did it carry through the wind? Did you hear me shouting from the mountain? Sorry for my sins. All I ask of you, my darling, forgive my lust in hand. I would search my world over just to hear you say you can. Oh, why'd you go? Why'd you run off to another town? Oh, why'd you go? Why'd you run off? Oh, and why'd you leave me wandering, searching, hoping, stumbling? A lot of times bluegrass music feels fun and uplifting, but the songs on potions and poisons have some pretty dark lyrics. And there are themes about substance abuse, breakups. Joe, how does the band blend unhappy lyrics with cheerful music? Well, I... Uh, it's a it's a bluegrass tradition, you know. It's a it's an Americana um, mainstay to have, you know, uplifting sounding major key songs about murder and death and <laughs> despair. So you know, we're just continuing on that tradition, I suppose. I think our our the songs on this record are coming less maybe from a place of super traditional bluegrass, but it is uh our way of kind of yeah maybe not always having the melodies and stuff be be so dark that allows us to you know veil some and and it's not that it's always always so dark and uh as we're making it sound but um we want to be able to tackle um serious subject matter and uh and sometimes the way of doing that is is through a, a still pretty sounding song you know and it must be cathartic to write Oh, definitely. Yeah. Let's hear some more music. This is the title track from the album Potions and Poisons. Swallow me whole and I'll sail you away from things that you think and the words that you say. Take me for pleasure, take me for pain, but take me is better than taking blame like you do. Matt, the band has self-released all of its albums, including Potions and Poisons. And there are a lot of reasons why a band might decide not to work with a professional label label or distributor. Why did your band? We've always kind of, um, we've taken the, the grassroots approach to the development of the band from the very beginning. And uh, that's been true with our recording process as well. And I think in order to kind of keep moving forward and to keep the momentum with the writing and with the production of the music and our desire to really get this music out there and get this 
you know, this music heard and a representation of the band with the new kind of version of the band with Sam, we decided that it was best to go ahead and just, you know, put this out on our own. It can You can kind of play a waiting game and do the thing of, uh, am I going to wait for this opportunity that in theory is going to come down the line six months, which is something that we, we tackled with this record and we decided to to just kind of do it ourselves. And, you know, I think really at the end of the day, um, it's it's about serving the touring, and that's what we do with the record. So. What about poetic license? Yeah, you know, it's. I would say that just being able to have the artwork be the way that we want it and all those things, we're very like, you know, Joe... Um, Joe did the art on this record and kind of each piece has always been very much something that's come from us we do the music videos in house we do a lot of that kind of stuff it kind of comes creatively from the band so being able to realize all the things on our own like that was kind of what we went with this time So, You've seen firsthand how Colorado's made a mark on bluegrass in recent years what's the appeal of that particular music for people here? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think it. We feel like usually there's some kind of connection to the between bluegrass and the kind of outdoor nature of Colorado and the people here, and so we end up playing a lot of festivals that are kind of in the mountains and centered around outdoorsy mountain kind of stuff, and and that is uh, pretty pretty friendly to the to the music and the kind of the whole scene. So I don't know it also just an open-minded kind of attitude out here in general i think has been uh helped us a lot and fostered a a a bluegrass-ish uh state where we're not we don't feel like we have to do a certain super traditional style of bluegrass because that's not what any of the bands out here have really done so matt what are your thoughts on that you know i think colorado has a great tradition of um if if you look at the whole idea, if you can go deep on the history of bluegrass, obviously, and in Colorado since the '70s, we've had a thing of you know using the electric bass like Hot Rise did and bringing in outside elements that aren't quite straight down the middle. So that's kind of always been something that's been here, and it continues to be the case with groups like Elephant Revival making such mm-hmm. a splash. And um, it, it's just kind of the way the band was started here, and it's the way we've always been and it's we've never known anything else which is pretty awesome really and we should say that elephant revival one of the band's singers bonnie Payne, contributed to this album she sang a song is yeah that right? and she plays washboard on another song so yeah and back to the label idea are there a lot of opportunities for bluegrass um and labels to take on bluegrass right now <laughs> I think we have uh we've found a bit of um a lack of opportunity in that in that direction. Uh it's it's hard it's hard out there to to find the 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 thing that you think is going to really connect with us and we've we've yet to find that honestly. Well, um let's hear one more song from Head for the Hills. It's called Waiting on You. I never thought I would find you. No matter how hard I try to, you're out of my reach Dreaming I was calling your name, feeling around in the sheets I always thought it would happen I never thought it would happen In the blink of an eye At the drop of a hat Wonder what happened that made us give it a try 
Matt and Joe, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Matt Lowen and Joe Lassard are members of the Fort Collins Quartet, Head for the Hills. Their latest album, Potions and Poisons, is out now. The band performs at the Jazz Aspen Snowmass Festival, July 6th, and at the Bohemian Nights at New West Fest in Fort Collins in August. It's true. I've been waiting on you. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Waiting on you. Baby, baby, it's true.